Welcome to my Halloween mixtape. I've always loved Halloween, ever since I was a little kid and Dad took me trick-or-treating. Then, later on, as I got older, I loved reading spooky stories, letting my imagination run away with me. When I got older still, I developed a taste for horror films. And so now, as an adult, I can enjoy both the happy and innocent Halloween of the past and the dark and foreboding Halloween of stories like the one you'll hear here by H.P. Lovecraft as well as a lot of really great music. So just keep listening and I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Don't ever brag about what you do if you saw a ghost. It's a sure way to get them angry at
The Hound by H.P. Lovecraft In my tortured ears there sounds unceasingly a nightmare whirring and flapping and a faint distant baying as of some gigantic hound. It is not dream. It is not, I fear, even madness, for too much already has happened to give me these merciful doubts. Sinjin is a mangled corpse. I alone know why, and such is my knowledge that I am about to blow out my brains for fear I shall be mangled in the same way. Down unlit and illimitable corridors of eldritch fantasy sweeps the black, shameless nemesis that drives me to self-annihilation. May heaven forgive the folly and morbidity which led us both to so monstrous a fate. Wearied with the commonplaces of a prosaic world, where even the joys of romance and adventure soon grow stale, Sinjin and I had followed enthusiastically every aesthetic and intellectual movement which promised respite from our devastating ennui. The enigmas of the symbolists and the ecstasies of the pre-Raphaelites all were ours in their time, but each new mood was drained too soon of its diverting novelty and appeal. Only the sombre philosophy of the decadence could help us, and this we found potent only by increasing gradually the depth and diabolism of our penetrations. Baudelaire and Heismans were soon exhausted of thrills, till finally there remained for us only the more direct stimuli of unnatural personal experiences and adventures. It was this frightful emotional need which led us eventually to that detestable course which even in my present fear I mention with shame and timidity. That hideous extremity of human outrage, the abhorred practice of grave robbing. I cannot reveal the details of our shocking expeditions or catalogue even partly the worst of the trophies adorning the nameless museum we prepared in the great stone house where we jointly dwelt, alone and servantless. Our museum was a blasphemous, unthinkable place where, with the satanic taste of neurotic virtuosi, we had assembled an universe of terror and decay to excite our jaded sensibilities. It was a secret room, far, far underground, where huge winged demons carven of basalt and onyx vomited from wide grinning mouths weird green and orange light, and hidden pneumatic pipes ruffled into kaleidoscopic dances of death the lines of red charnel things hand in hand, woven in voluminous black hangings. Through these pipes came at will the odours our moods most craved, sometimes the scent of pale funeral lilies, sometimes the narcotic incense of imagined eastern shrines of the kingly dead, and sometimes 
how I shudder to recall it, the frightful, soul-upheaving stenches of the uncovered grave. Around the walls of this repellent chamber were cases of antique mummies alternating with comely, lifelike bodies, perfectly stuffed and cured by the taxidermist's art, and with headstones snatched from the oldest churchyards of the world. Niches here and there contained skulls of all shapes, and heads preserved in various stages of dissolution. There one might find the rotting, bald pates of famous noblemen, and the fresh and radiantly golden heads of new-buried children. Statues and paintings there were, all of fiendish subjects, and some executed by St. John and myself. A locked portfolio, bound in tanned human skin, held certain unknown and unnameable drawings, which it was rumoured Goya had perpetrated, but dared not acknowledge. There were nauseous musical instruments, stringed, brass and woodwind, on which St. John and I sometimes produced dissonances of exquisite morbidity and cacodemonical ghastliness, while in a multitude of inlaid ebony cabinets reposed the most incredible and unimaginable variety of tomb-loot ever assembled by human madness and perversity. It is of this loot in particular that I must not speak. Thank God I had the courage to destroy it long before I thought of destroying myself. The predatory excursions on which we collected our unmentionable treasures were always artistically memorable events. We were no vulgar ghouls, but worked only under certain conditions of mood, landscape, environment, weather, season, and moonlight. These pastimes were to us the most exquisite form of aesthetic expression, and we gave their details a fastidious technical care. An inappropriate hour, a jarring lighting effect, or a clumsy manipulation of the damp sod would almost totally destroy for us that ecstatic titillation which followed the exhumation of some ominous, grinning secret of the earth. Our quest for novel scenes and piquant conditions was feverish and insatiate. St. John was always the leader, and he it was who led the way at last to that mocking, accursed spot which brought us our hideous and inevitable doom. By what malign fatality were we lured to that terrible Holland churchyard? I think it was the dark rumour and legendary, the tales of one buried for five centuries, who had himself been a ghoul in his time, and had stolen a potent thing from a mighty sepulchre. I can recall the scene in these final moments, the pale autumnal moon over the graves, casting long, horrible shadows, the grotesque trees drooping sullenly to meet the neglected grass, and the crumbling slabs, 
the vast legions of strangely colossal bats that flew against the moon, the antique ivied church pointing a huge spectral finger at the livid sky, the phosphorescent insects that danced like death fires under the yews in a distant corner, the odors of mold, vegetation, and less explicable things that mingled feebly with the night wind from over far swamps and seas, and worst of all, the faint, deep-toned baying of some gigantic hound which we could neither see nor definitely place. As we heard this suggestion of baying, we shuddered, remembering the tales of the peasantry, for he whom we sought had, centuries before, been found in this self-same spot, torn and mangled by the claws and teeth of some unspeakable beast. I remember how we delved in the ghoul's grave with our spades, and how we thrilled at the picture of ourselves, the grave, the pale watching moon, the horrible shadows, the grotesque trees, the titanic bats, the antique church, the dancing death fires, the sickening odors, the gently moaning night wind, and the strange half-hearted directionalist's baying of whose objective existence we could scarcely be sure. Then we struck a substance harder than the damp mold and beheld a rotting oblong box crusted with mineral deposits from the long undisturbed ground. It was incredibly tough and thick but so old that we finally pried it open and feasted our eyes on what it held. Much, amazingly much, was left of the object despite the lapse of five hundred years. The skeleton, though crushed in places by the jaws of the thing that had killed it, held together with surprising firmness, and we gloated over the clean white skull and its long firm teeth and its eyeless sockets that once had glowed with a charnel fever like our own. In the coffin lay an amulet of curious and exotic design which had apparently been worn around the sleeper's neck. It was the oddly conventionalized figure of a crouching winged hound or sphinx with a semi-canine face and was exquisitely carved in antique oriental fashion from a small piece of green jade. The expression of its features was repellent in the extreme, savoring at once of death, bestiality, and malevolence. Around the base was an inscription in characters which neither St. John nor I could identify, and on the bottom like a maker's seal, was graven a grotesque and formidable skull. Immediately on beholding the amulet, we knew that we must possess it, that this treasure alone was our logical pelf from the centuried grave, 
even had its outlines been unfamiliar, we would have desired it. But as we looked more closely, we saw that it was not wholly unfamiliar. Alien it indeed was to all art and literature, which sane and balanced readers know, but we recognized it as the thing hinted of in the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Alhazred, the ghastly soul symbol of the corpse-eating cult of inaccessible Leng in Central Asia. All too well did we trace the sinister lineaments described by the old Arab demonologist. Lineaments, he wrote, drawn from some obscure supernatural manifestation of the souls of those who vexed and gnawed at the dead. Seizing the green jade object, we gave a last glance at the bleached and cavernied face of its owner and closed up the grave as we had found it. As we hastened from the abhorrent spot, the stolen amulet in St. John's pocket, we thought we saw the bats descend in a body to the earth we had so lately rifled, as if seeking for some cursed and unholy nourishment. But the autumn moon shone weak and pale, and we could not be sure. So, too, as we sailed the next day from Holland to our home, we thought we heard the faint, distant baying of some gigantic hound in the background. Less than a week after our return to England, strange things began to happen. We lived as recluses, devoid of friends, alone, and without servants in a few rooms of an ancient manor house on a bleak and unfrequented moor, so that our doors were seldom disturbed by the knock of the visitor. Now, however, we were troubled by what seemed to be a frequent fumbling in the night, not only around the doors, but around the windows also, upper as well as lower. Once, we fancied that a large opaque body darkened the library window when the moon was shining against it. And another time, we thought we heard a whirring or flapping sound not far off. On each occasion, investigation revealed nothing, and we began to ascribe the occurrences to imagination, which still prolonged in our ears the faint, far baying we thought we had heard in the Holland churchyard. The jade amulet now reposed in a niche in our museum, and sometimes we burned a strangely scented candle before it. We read much in Al-Hazred's Necromonicon about its properties, and about the relation of ghost souls to the objects it symbolized, and were disturbed by what we read. Then, terror came. On the night of September the 24th, I heard a knock at my chamber door. Fancying it St. John's, I bade the knocker enter, but was answered only by a shrill laugh. There was no one in the corridor. When I aroused St. John from his sleep, he professed entire ignorance of the event and became as worried as I. It was the night that the faint, 
distant baying over the moor, became to us a certain and dreaded reality. Four days later, while we were both in the hidden museum, there came a low, cautious scratching at the single door which led to the secret library staircase. Our alarm was now divided, for besides our fear of the unknown, we had always entertained a dread that our grisly collection might be discovered. Extinguishing all lights, we proceeded to the door and threw it suddenly open, whereupon we felt an unaccountable rush of air and heard, as if receding far away, a queer combination of rustling, tittering, and articulate chatter. Whether we were mad, dreaming, or in our senses, we did not try to determine. We only realized, with the blackest of apprehensions, that the apparently disembodied chatter was beyond a doubt in the Dutch language. After that, we lived in growing horror and fascination. Mostly, we held to the theory that we were jointly going mad from our life of unnatural excitements, but sometimes it pleased us more to dramatize ourselves as the victims of some creeping and appalling doom. Bizarre manifestations were now too frequent to count. Our lonely house was seemingly alive with the presence of some malign being, whose nature we could not guess, and every night that demoniac baying rolled over the windswept moor, always louder and louder. On October the 29th, we found in the soft earth underneath the library window a series of footprints utterly impossible to describe. They were as baffling as the hordes of great bats which haunted the old manor house in unprecedented and increasing numbers. The horror reached a culmination on November the 18th, when St. John, walking home after dark from the dismal railway station, was seized by some frightful carnivorous thing and torn to ribbons. His screams had reached the house, and I had hastened to the terrible scene in time to hear a whir of wings and see a vague, black, cloudy thing silhouetted against the rising moon. My friend was dying when I spoke to him, and he could not answer coherently. All he could do was to whisper, The amulet! That damn thing! Then he collapsed, an inert mass of mangled flesh. I buried him the next midnight in one of our neglected gardens, and mumbled over his body one of the devilish rituals he had loved in life. And as I pronounced the last demoniac sentence, I heard afar on the moor the faint baying of some gigantic hound. The moon was up, but I dared not look at it. And when I saw on the dim-lighted moor a wide nebulous shadow sweeping from mound to mound, I shut my eyes and threw myself face down upon the ground. When I arose, trembling, I know not 
how much later, I staggered into the house and made shocking obeisance before the enshrined amulet of green jade. Being now afraid to live alone in the ancient house on the moor, I departed on the following day for London, taking with me the amulet after destroying by fire and burial the rest of the impious collection in the museum. But after three nights, I heard the baying again, and before a week was over, felt strange eyes upon me whenever it was dark. One evening, as I strolled on Victoria Embankment for some needed air, I saw a black shape obscure one of the reflections of the lamps in the water. A wind, stronger than the night wind, rushed by, and I knew that what had befallen St. John must soon befall me. The next day, I carefully wrapped the green jade amulet and sailed for Holland. What mercy I might gain by returning the thing to its silent, sleeping owner I knew not, but I felt that I must try any step conceivably logical. What the hound was, and why it had pursued me, were questions still vague. But I had first heard the baying in that ancient churchyard, and every subsequent event, including St. John's dying whisper, had served to connect the curse with the stealing of the amulet. Accordingly, I sank into the nethermost abysses of despair when, at an inn in Rotterdam, I discovered that thieves had despoiled me of this sole means of salvation. The baying was loud that evening, and in the morning I read of a nameless deed in the vilest quarter of the city. The rabble were in terror, for upon an evil tenement had fallen a red death beyond the foulest previous crime of the neighborhood. In a squalid thieves' den, an entire family had been torn to shreds by an unknown thing which left no trace, and those around had heard all night a faint, deep, insistent note, as of a gigantic hound. So, at last, I stood again in the unwholesome churchyard where a pale winter moon cast hideous shadows, and leafless trees drooped sullenly to meet the withered frosty grass and cracking slabs, and the ivied church pointed a jeering finger at the unfriendly sky, and the night wind howled maniacally from over frozen swamps and frigid seas. The baying was very faint now, and it ceased altogether as I approached the ancient grave I had once violated and frightened away an abnormally large horde of bats which had been hovering curiously around it. I know not why I went thither unless to pray or gibber out insane pleas and apologies to the calm white thing that lay within, but whatever my reason, I attacked the half-frozen sod with a desperation partly mine and partly that of a dominating will outside myself. Excavation was much easier than I expected, though at one point I encountered a queer interruption, 
when a lean vulture darted down out of the cold sky and pecked frantically at the grave earth until I killed him with a blow of my spade. Finally, I reached the rotting oblong box and removed the damp nitrous cover. This is the last rational act I ever performed. For crouched within that centuried coffin, embraced by a close-packed nightmare retinue of huge, sinewy, sleeping bats, was the bony thing my friend and I had robbed. Not clean and placid as we had seen it then, but covered with caked blood and shreds of alien flesh and hair and leering sentiently at me with phosphorescent sockets and sharp and sanguine fangs yawning twistedly in mockery of my inevitable doom. And when it gave from those grinning jaws a deep sardonic bay as of some gigantic hound and I saw that it held in its gory, filthy claw the lost and fateful amulet of green jade. I merely screamed and ran away idiotically, my screams soon dissolving into peals of hysterical laughter. Madness rides the star wind, claws and teeth sharpened on centuries of corpses, dripping death astride a bacchanal of bats from black night ruins of buried temples of Baliel. Now, as the baying of that dead, fleshless monstrosity grows louder and louder, and the stealthy whirring and flapping of those accursed web wings circles closer and closer, I shall seek with my revolver the oblivion which is my only refuge from the unnamed and unnameable.
The story I'm about to read comes from a book that I discovered about age 9 or 10 and I checked it out of the library and I renewed it and renewed it and renewed it because I loved reading these stories and in retrospect they were actually pretty gruesome for a kid's book I think and pretty mature but that's kind of what I liked about it and this definitely helped me to develop a taste for the macabre and classic horror and I recently found a copy of it on eBay for cheap it usually goes for around $70 I happened to find one inexpensively for about 20 bucks 15 I think 20 was shipping just happened to arrive around Halloween and I would like to read you a story from it this is my favorite story from this book and it's called Wendigo's Child Wendigo's Child by Thomas F. Monteleone. Summer had finally come to Kenora, Arizona, and for Marty Alvarez, that meant tinkling glasses of lemonade, blue-bottomed swimming pools, and freedom from Miss Cowley's fifth-grade class. He was riding his bike out of town to find the new discovery that he had read about in his father's newspaper. The day before, two old prospectors had come into town with a report that they had uncovered an Indian burial ground. Tomorrow, a group of college people would be coming out from Tempe to investigate, and Marty wanted to search through the area before they got there. He loved to collect Indian arrowheads and artifacts. He had big shelves full of them in his room. Following the directions from the newspaper, he pedaled out Arizona 187 for about five miles until he came to the bridge over McCarger's Gulch. 
Marty left the bike under the bridge and hiked another mile down the gulch before he saw the place. There was a big mound that rose up along the side of the gulch, and it was almost as big as a football field. Climbing up the side of the gulch, Marty saw a big open pit where the prospectors had been digging. They had left a deep depression in the ground and had uncovered a row of ten stone piles. The boy knew that they must be the Indian graves. Marty climbed down into the pit. Just then the wind came up and the Arizona sun fell behind some passing clouds. The pit became cold and shadowy and Marty felt a chill ice its way through his bones as the breeze tickled the hairs on the back of his neck. He looked down at the long row of graves, thinking of what must be hidden beneath them. The sun came out and the chilly spell was broken. Marty thought about the treasures that he might find underneath the rocks. He knelt down by the closest one and began to unstack the stones. Several minutes later he was sweating and his hands were covered with sandy dirt. He had broken down the stone grave and had found only some tiny scraps of bone and some broken pieces of pottery. There was no skeleton as he had feared there would be. But there were no treasures either. Marty decided that the Indians probably buried the valuable things only with their chief, so he became determined to uncover the graves until he found the right one. He uncovered three more graves that were just as uninteresting as the first, but the fifth one was somehow different. The stones weren't just piled up one on top of another, but instead they seemed to be held together with some sort of cement. Even though it had dried out over all the years, Marty still had a hard time breaking the rocks apart. He had a feeling that this grave was something special. He was right. As he broke through the outer crust, a strange smell hit his nostrils. It was like rotten garbage or a dead animal that had been left out in the sun, and it burned and stung the inside of his nose. There was something different under this one Marty knew, as he felt a slug-like fear crawl up his back to settle in his brain. He hesitated a moment before uncovering the rest of the rocks. His stomach churned as he uncovered the thing, and he pulled his trembling hands away. He had almost touched it. It looked vaguely like a little baby, with its curled up legs and thin, stick-like arms. It was about two feet long and covered with dark brown skin that looked like cracked, dry leather. The head was like a human skull, but instead of teeth, it bore a sharp, curved beak like a big bird. Marty couldn't really see the thing's bones but they were almost visible under the skin, which was stretched tightly over them. The eye sockets were empty, big and dark and round, but the face seemed to be almost grinning. Marty imagined that it looked like a grotesquely happy little mummy. If it was a mummy of some kind, it was probably real old, he thought, and the college people would be interested in seeing it. There might even be a reward for finding it. He gathered up his courage and reached down and touched the thing. It felt dry and hollow. And as he picked it up, he noticed that it was surprisingly light, like sun-dried corn husks. He wrapped it up in his shirt, carried it back to his bike, and laid it carefully in the basket on his handlebars. On the way back to Kenora, Marty decided he had better hide the thing until the following day when he could take it to the college people. His mother would be horrified if she saw it, and if his father found out, Marty knew that he would make him turn it into the sheriff. Up ahead, he saw Charlie Longhand's last chance gas station and had an idea. Charlie was one of the town's oldest Indians and used to amuse all the kids by telling them Indian stories. Marty pulled up by the pump and set his kickstand. Hey Charlie, he yelled at the aged man sitting in a straight back chair by the station door. How you doing? I gotta talk to you. 
The Indian stood up from the chair and smiled, increasing the lines and ridges in his mahogany-colored face. Sure, Marty, what can I do for you? I gotta ask you something. Something about Indians. Well, you came to the right person, said Charlie, and he laughed. Well, it's like this, said Marty. Me and some of the guys at school were arguing. They said that Egypt was the only place where mummies came from. And I said it wasn't true, because the Indians had mummies too. They all laugh, but I'm right, ain't I, Charlie? What do you mean, mummies? The Indian's smile faded away like a dust cloud in the wind. Marty hesitated, not sure what to say. Then, ah, uh, you know, little dried up bodies, like little babies, kind of. Charlie nodded and rubbed his chin with long, slender fingers. Yes, Marty, you're right. My people did leave mummies, as you call them in English. We called them weonies. I have never seen a Weoni, but my great-grandmother told me stories about them. What kind of stories? Marty kicked up the dirt with his shoe, trying to be casually interested, while his mind raced with anticipation. The Weonis were put in the ground with the dead, said Charlie slowly. When a papoose would die, the mother would wash it in sacred waters and let it dry in the sun. Then she would place it in a grave near her ancestors to guard the place from evil. Wow! Why'd they do that, Charlie? Thinking about the Weoni in his bike basket, Marty felt a shudder creep through him. A long time ago, many tribes across the country feared a great god. He was known by many names, Yagun, Okibu, Shalaki. But most of my people knew him as Wendigo. He was a great monster who came from the stars and ruled the earth like a devil. He had the body of a man, the head of a bird, and the claws of a lizard and he ate the meat of men. But he was a good god to the Indians who worshipped him, and the legend said that as a reward, he transformed the Weonis into his children to guard the burial grounds. His children? Marty asked. Yes, baby-sized creatures that looked like Wendigo. Any man who stirred up the ancestors' bones would be destroyed and eaten by Wendigo's children. But as the years passed, the legend died out. Now only my people keep up the custom by leaving their own papooses to guard the graves. The Indian fell silent as he himself remembered the old tales of his youth. Marty thanked him quickly, said goodbye, and jumped on his bike to ride into town. What a great story, he thought. Now he would have something to tell the folks who came in from the college on the next day. It was late in the day when he got home, but his parents were both still at work at the newspaper office. His dog, Digger, who was tied up to the clothesline in the backyard, began to bark as Marty pulled up on his bike. When he picked up the package from his basket, the dog pulled back and started to growl from way back in his throat. Then he began pulling at the rope. Hey Digger, cut it out, yelled the boy. What's the matter with you? The dog just snarled and showed a row of teeth like little knives. Marty walked past him toward the sloping doors to the cellar steps carrying the little package of the Weoni in his shirt. Opening the doors, he scurried down into the cool dampness of the cellar. The sun splashed a little path for several feet into the dark and then disappeared. Marty felt the cold fingers of darkness settle over his bare shoulders and quickened his pace through the blackness. Crossing over to the corner where the oil burner sat, he unwrapped the mummified thing. As his eyes adjusted to the dark, he looked down at it and almost imagined that the hollow sockets were staring at him. Quickly he laid the thing down amid some spider webs 
and ran back to the steps up into the warmth and light again. He felt a lot better then. Later that night, after he and his parents had gone to bed, Marty was awakened by Digger out in the yard. The dog was howling and baying like he had never done before. Marty had a good idea as to why, so he got up, put on some pants, and carefully sneaked downstairs. He got a flashlight from the kitchen drawer and stepped out into the cool night air. Hey boy, come on, you're going to wake up Dad. The dog fell silent and whimpered over to the boy. When Marty knelt down and petted Digger, he could feel the little dog's body trembling and his heart beating very fast. He glanced away from the dog to the big cellar doors. Unhooking Digger's rope, Marty led him over to the entrance to the cellar. The dog began to growl louder and louder with every step. Take it easy, Digger. Come on now, I'll show you. There's nothing to be afraid of. As he unlatched the doors and opened them, Marty thought he caught a faint whiff of the same smell he had noticed at the burial ground that day. All of a sudden, Digger became very quiet. No growls, no movement. Marty thought he could almost hear his blood pumping through the veins in the back of his neck. The flashlight felt slippery in his sweaty hand. He flicked it on, and the beam sliced through the blackness to the corner of the cellar where the oil burner was. The light danced up and down, but Marty couldn't keep his hand from shaking a little bit. He couldn't see much, so he reluctantly slipped farther down the cellar steps, closer to the corner where he had left the thing. The spot of light grew bigger and illuminated some paint cans, some old rags, cobwebs, and the cinder block walls. But that was all. A lump began to form in the boy's throat, and as it slowly thickened into a hard knot, his mouth became very dry when he tried to swallow. He looked through the darkness and the beam of the flashlight, but saw nothing. The thing was gone. Marty looked down at Digger and became aware of the dog's fast-paced breath. He tried to concentrate on the sound, the nearness of the dog sitting by his side. He tried to think of how safe he was under his parents' house with his dog. There was nothing to be afraid of, but he kept thinking about the thing. How did it disappear? How did it get moved? Then there was another sound, at first very soft, almost imperceptible, but definitely coming from the darkness in the cellar. It sounded like some dry sticks being dragged across the cement floor. The scuddling, scraping noises in the dark gained in intensity in Marty's ears until they seemed to be the only sounds he had ever heard. The scraping sounds grew louder, closer, and Marty stabbed the cellar blackness with the flashlight beam, looking for the source of the noise. He sat upright on the wooden steps and froze suddenly. Digger must have sensed it too, and in an instant, the little dog bounded off into the darkness, barking loudly. Marty opened his mouth to scream at the little dog, but no words formed on his dry lips. No sound came forth. Into the silence of his brain came the crashing sounds of conflict. Digger's barking was transformed into fierce saliva-muffled growls. He heard objects in the cellar crash about the floor as something thrashed in the dark. Then he heard the dog's growl change into a whining, whimpering cry. The cry became a long, high-pitched screech that was suddenly choked off. Marty felt his muscles go rigid and felt the fear turning him to stone. He forced himself to raise the arm that held the flashlight and stabbed its beam into the darkness again. Digger! He had to find him, but he couldn't bring his rigid body to leave the comparative safety of the cellar stairs. 
Seconds passed in silence as he waited, not knowing what would come next. Marty wished he had never gone out to the graveyard. Then he heard another sound, and then another. Several loud, snapping, cracking sounds cut through the darkness and burned his eardrums. They were followed by an oozing, soft, gurgling, slurping noise. Marty felt sick, and he fought to keep the hot, acrid liquid from surging up his dry throat. He turned and scrambled up the stairs. Fireworks went off. Trumpets sounded. Drums crashed as he bashed his head into the closed cellar door. The impact jarred loose the other door, which he had left open, and it rumbled down, closing, sealing him in. Panic seized his throttled brain as he pushed upward on the cellar doors, but they would not budge. The latch had caught when the door fell shut, locking him in. He sat, panting for breath on the darkened steps, and then he heard the scraping sounds begin once more. They grew louder and quicker, getting closer. He lurched upward at the doors again, and the flashlight slipped from his damp palm. It bounced down the stairs, splaying out its frantic beam of light as Marty crouched at the top of the steps in a few brief flashes of the flailing light he thought he saw, just for an instant, a brown, eyeless skull and a beak that glistened with dark liquid on the edges. It was looking up at him. We can do things with our bodies beyond your wildest imaginings.
wildest imaginations.